the sound that 500 dogs make when they're barking is something you will never get out of your head. That's Janet Weitzel-Jenka. She has spent decades rescuing dogs from breeding facilities in her home state of Ohio. And she's the listener who suggested today's topic, puppy mills. Over 2.6 million dogs in the U.S. originate from commercial breeders, more commonly known as puppy mills. There are countless stories of animals being kept in miserable conditions with small cages and no medical care. Last month, New York banned the sale of dogs to pet stores to cut down on the use of puppy mills. And dozens of other states also have their own bans in place. But many breeders continue to operate under the radar of federal scrutiny. I'm Celeste Headley, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We wrap up our Listener Picks series today and get into the politics of puppies after the break. Let's get into it now with our guests who know a lot about America's dog breeding industry. John Goodwin is the senior director of the Stop Puppy Mills Department of the Humane Society of the United States. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Don't need to describe where your position is. Uh, Mike Bober is president and CEO of the Pet Advocacy Network, an organization that works with breeders and advocates in state legislatures for responsible breeding practices. Mike, welcome to you as well. Hi, thanks for having me. I feel like we should start by saying there's one thing we all agree on, which is the type of of breeding facility that Janet just described, no one's in support of that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. We're also hearing from you. About 10 years ago, I started an animal rescue with a friend. And unfortunately, we haven't seen much improvement in the number of animals that need our help on a daily basis. We purchased a puppy a few years ago. And being in Pennsylvania, we know there's an issue with puppy mills. So we did our due diligence and we asked the right questions. I really think until there are better spay-neuter laws in place, we're not going to see anything change. We even went and met the puppy in advance of making the purchase. I'm saddened to continue to see people in my community with the idea that they should breed their dogs for one litter in order to enjoy having puppies. We later found out that that puppy was bred in a situation that wasn't really conducive to what we would have hoped for. Thanks to Ava in North Carolina and Brenda in Pennsylvania. And full disclosure, I have a point of view. I am strongly pro-shelter dogs and have only had shelter dogs. Uh, But we're going to have a fair discussion about what's the best way to care for these dogs that all of us agree are awesome. Um, but let's begin with the with the definition. What do we mean? Um, and let me go to you, John. What do we mean when we say puppy mill? What is that? Generally, a puppy mill would be a commercial dog breeding operation where the uh, basic needs of the dogs are not being met. Uh, profit or wealth before welfare would be a good description. So I'm thinking of places that look kind of like puppy factory farms, really high volume operations with a large number of dogs who will be in rows of cages and routinely bred every heat cycle until their bodies wear out, often killed when they're no longer productive. Some might quietly retire some breeding dogs to rescues, and we certainly encourage that and think that's a good thing, but a lot of them are killed. And uh, basically, a kennel with a mindset that views these dogs as agriculture commodities or livestock rather than family pets. So, Mike, there are thousands upon thousands of breeders in the U.S., and not all of them 
are ethical. Um, they're not all factories either. Sometimes it's a it's a regular individual who just decides to breed their pet. How common is that? Well, I, I appreciate you saying that because that that really kind of gets to the heart of of what I think the discussion is that needs to to be cleared up right off the bat. You know, the even the description for this program, you all cited uh, some numbers: two point six million dogs from commercial breeders and puppy mills, uh, of which there are. 10,000 puppy mills, these aren't statistics. These are estimates that were created by the Humane Society of the United States and others. Um, and the reality is that, that when we lump all commercial breeders together, when we create a situation that says that there's no such thing as a good responsible breeder, we're actually creating a situation where we're driving people to those unlicensed, unregulated breeders in the first place, people who are operating in the shadows or intentionally flouting the law. So I would say that the, the, the answer to your question is situations like that are outliers. They are not the standard. You think, though. I do. Because that's I, an estimate I've, also, right? Well, no, no, because the number of, of licensed and inspected breeders in the country is verifiable. Those licenses can be pulled, and those inspection reports can be brought up. And the reality is the majority of inspected breeders are not operating under those conditions. And I think it comes down to your mindset. If you believe off the top of your head that breeders are inherently bad, that they're going to put profits before pets, then the absence of a negative inspection report isn't a proof. If instead you believe that breeders are generally inclined to do the right thing and they want to do right by their animals, then you see a clean inspection report and you say, oh, good, this is a, this is a facility that's operating responsibly. Right. You're talking about attitude, and, but I'm a little confused on stats because it... it we don't actually know how many unethical breeders there are because they're not licensed. Right. Let me, so let me take this back to you, John, because sure. he's quoting some t statistics that come not only from the Humane Society, but the right. ASPCA and others. What's your response to that? Well, first off, regarding the standards of care in places that have clean inspection reports, this comes down to what the USDA's standards are for a commercial dog breeding operation. And those standards are survival standards at best. This barely, when you see a clean inspection report, that's not an assurance of good care. They can keep a dog in a cage that is literally only six inches longer than her body. That is incredible confinement. And yet we still see some of these people being cited for not having enough space for the dogs. Uh, we can, the, all the conditions that I described in the first comments I made about, you know, dogs being bred every heat cycle, being killed when they're, uh, retired. All of that is legal under the USDA standards. John, let me ask you this question that comes from one of our listeners um, who emails, does rescuing retired breeding dogs from puppy mills, often at auctions, perpetuate the puppy mill pipeline? So there are a small number of groups that go and buy these dogs at these auctions. And I think that's a bad idea. I disagree with that practice. Uh, I don't think that we should be going and uh, paying folks sometimes large sums of money because you're just financing the very problem that we're against. Now, that said, there are only two dog auction houses in the United States, and one of them, is my understanding, doesn't allow any of these uh, so-called rescues to, and I say that because they're buying dogs from puppy mills, uh, doesn't even allow them to go there. So I think that that's a regrettable practice, but it is limited to one location in southwestern Missouri. So, Mike, 
we've talked a lot about how everyone does thinks <laughs> that dogs should be treated well. That's a, a universal opinion for the most part, mm -hmm. certainly among everyone in this room. So when we say responsible dog breeding, John was saying that the law right now allows for irresponsible dog breeding. What's your characterization of responsible dog breeding? Sure. Um, the the idea that, that the USDA standards are somehow the exactly level that, that, that breeders get up to uh, when they breed is, again, it comes from that mindset that presupposes that breeders are looking to cut corners and to, to put profit before pets. Uh, the reality is that most breeders in the country far exceed the standards that are in place because they are standards that are meant to create a baseline. Uh, most breeders in the country are also regulated at the state level. And so I would say that the from our perspective, responsible breeding is exactly what we what we agreed to in the definition of puppy mills about ten years ago. Again, it's it's making sure that the health and well-being of the animals is prioritized. That you're staying up on the best practices for what it is to provide responsible veterinary care. Uh, things like enrichment that we're seeing studies are are calling more and more attention to. Uh, we don't see. The, the, the breeder that you know locks his dogs in, in dishwasher-sized cages and walks away from him uh, with anywhere near the frequency that, that people are, are being led to believe. These are outliers. These are, not, these are not reflective of standard practices. We got this message from John in Maryland, who is a dog breeder himself. One of the things that we're running into as people who do breed dogs for show confirmation obedience, and hunt, on all of these purposes, uh, we are being responsible in knowing where the genetics go back three, four, or five generations. Unfortunately, a lot of the laws are impacting us because they don't contain exemptions for those of us who are this small, but yet do this to promote the quality and the health of a breed. We're going to be talking about the quality and health of purebred dogs, but... John, let me ask you, there's only one federal law in the right. U.S. that um, deals with the treatment of animals. That's the Animal Welfare Act. It was passed almost 60 years ago. Um, a number of states have passed more stringent laws right. attempting to protect animals, most recently in New York, which we will talk about. But what protections are there for dogs that are bred in facilities under that original law, the AWA? So those were the standards that I was talking about earlier. So to... Be if you need, if you're going to be licensed under the Animal Welfare Act, you have to have at least five or more breeding female dogs, and you have to sell to people sight unseen, whether that be selling through a pet store, selling through a broker who often then resells to a pet store, or selling over the internet sight unseen. You could have a thousand dogs, but if you sell them all at a flea market, then you wouldn't be covered by the federal regulations. Now, you might be covered under some sort of state regulation, uh, but you wouldn't be covered under the federal. Let me translate that really quickly. If I sell my puppies face-to-face, -face, I don't have to comply with the, the restrictions in the Animal Welfare Act. That's exactly right. Though if you sell one, like say, for example, over the internet and ship sight unseen, then you're supposed to be licensed and uh, adhere to those regulations that we were talking about and just you know, kind of debating whether or not they were uh, substantive. If, if I can jump in real quick, the, the Animal Welfare Act itself does not include the regulations for what, what is supposed to be done. That, those regulations are developed and then 
enforced by the Department of Agriculture itself. The USDA is yeah, what we're so there's there's a there's a rulemaking process uh, that they can go through to revise and to update the regulations that they impose on their their uh, regulated breeders. Uh, it's something that we've actually encouraged uh, the Secretary of Agriculture from time to time to look at using the best data sound science that's out there to determine whether there are updates that are appropriate to make. Tighter restrictions. Tighter restrictions or or updated restrictions based on better science. Like cage size. I mean, surely you would agree that the minimum cage size should be increased. So one of the things that we've, we've been trying to do is to have those conversations based on science based on right. on inspection you know on on studies that have been conducted uh, one of the things we're trying to avoid is legislation that would actually write the regulations into the animal welfare act itself because that would create a situation that would make it very difficult to then subsequently update yeah. those regulations okay. in the future what's your answer to John's question though do you think cage size should be Larger. I think cage sizes in, in general are, are absolutely worth something that need to be looked at and, and based on what a, a study would show. Yeah. You know, I, th I think we want I think we want to make sure we're not you know we're not just jumping to a conclusion and saying you know this dog should have have blank and not have it based on anything that's actually been well, studied. Science is certainly valuable when you're trying to determine things like how many litters can a dog have and still be healthy when retired? What's the appropriate, appropriate amount of enrichment or yeah. uh, socialization? Exactly. But I think that when you're talking about a, the minimum cage size being only six inches longer than the dog's body, uh, we certainly can do the science on that. Yeah. We, but we know what it's going to show because that's extreme confinement. Yeah. Now, um, on the issue of writing these standards into law, as was just mentioned, the Animal Welfare Act regulations on commercial dog breeding kennels or largely puppy mills were put in place in the early 1970s. There had been some very minimal tweaks since then. Uh, in 2020, they decided that the dogs actually had to have access to water all day. I mean, that's common sense. It's good, but it's a very small step forward. That's half a century. And so I think one area where we disagree on is whether or not Congress should go ahead and take action because the USDA has taken half a century to well, even... We, yeah. we definitely have a concern about situations where we're, we're relying on Congress, uh, who as of right now don't include anybody with a background in animal health, uh, to develop and then write standards that they would then have to update themselves. Uh, I don't know that I, I, don't know I'm that I trust Congress to take action. I'm going to interrupt you both here. Congress constantly weighs in on issues in which they have no expertise, but we did reach out the, to the USDA for comment on some of these, these laws and regulations. We did not receive um, a response from them, but we definitely, they, they declined actually. They did offer resources, especially for our listeners who are interested. They can take a look at our website. We have posted them there if you want to take a look at the resources that the USDA uh, supplied for us. But we are getting a lot of comments from our, our listeners, and let me get through some of those. Um, Dennis in Virginia emails, my family has decided never to get a dog or cat from a store because it was often born or raised in puppy mills. All four dogs we've had throughout my 23 years of life have been saved from shelters and have been some of the most loving and trusting dogs, not to mention cheaper than buying a puppy from one of these mills. Russell in Missouri emails, it was legal in Missouri to put a full-grown dog in a cage the size of a dishwasher, never let it out for exercise, and leave it there for life. Voters in Missouri approved a ballot measure in November 2010, restricting dog breeding to eliminate these puppy mills. Mm -hmm. Dog breeders are generally happy with these 
changes, particularly because they impose no restrictions on the size of breeding operations. And last email here from Allison. We foster, rescue, and have our own dogs. We've also purchased dogs from breeders. If one is able to visit a breeder, see their everyday operations on social media, interact with their dogs before purchasing or placing a deposit, then this is a quality breeder. Um, Mike, let me ask you about how somebody knows one responsible breeder from another. We already heard from a Mm -hmm. listener who thought they had done their due diligence and it turned out the puppy had come from a a puppy mill anyway. How, especially if you're interacting mostly online, how Mm -hmm. do you know? Well, that's that's a good question. And I I think it comes down to really kind of taking those steps and and making sure that you're not rushing into this. You know, it's, it's, repeated conversations. One conversation is never going to be enough to determine that you've got, you know, the, the situation sussed. You want to make sure that, that you're you're talking to, if you're going to a pet store, you're working with the, the pet store representatives to understand the, the background of the animal. If you're working with a breeder, you're making sure that you're having a, a very in-depth conversation about their breeding practices. If you're going to a shelter or a rescue, you want to make sure that you're asking questions to get as good an understanding of that animal's background as possible. Uh, you know, I myself adopted my first dog when I was uh, at the Washington Humane Society here in, in D.C., and I, I loved it. We had, a, we had a dog that absolutely just brought us so much joy for 10 years. And so I'm, I'm not anti-shelter. I'm not anti-rescue, and I don't think anybody should be. But I do think that adopt, don't shop simplifies things and and gets us to a point where people are missing out on opportunities to find their ideal companion and to make sure that an animal isn't going to be let go into a shelter because a bad choice was made at the beginning. Let's bring a new voice into this conversation, though. Dr. Danica Banish, a professor at the School of Vet Medicine at the University of California, Davis, and the Maxine Adler Endowed Chair in Genetics. Dr. Banish, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There is so much to dig into in this particular issue, but I'm so glad we have you here because I want to talk about purebred or designer dogs. Um, Designer dogs being uh, dog breeds that haven't been intentionally mixed to produce an even more popular breed, like a golden doodle or a puggle. Um, One concern about this is is uh, that it sometimes results in less healthy dogs. English bulldogs, notorious for breeding issues, veterinarians internationally have asked people not to either breed or by um, French bulldogs, pugs in particular. How often does this become a problem? Um, Well, there's certainly certain breeds that have some features associated with the breed, morphologies that can lead to health problems. Um, And that's one of the things that getting a purebred dog actually does for you is give you an idea what diseases that dog might have in its future. Not necessarily that they all have them, but that some of them could. So there's a um, knowledge of what to expect. And you also get knowledge of what to expect as far as size and shape and temperament. Um, breeding can be incredibly lucrative. Speaking of French bulldogs, they can cost more than $8,500. That's what the price they were going for at the peak of the pandemic, according to the National Library of Medicine. And we got this message from Craig in Minnesota. Commenting on the notion of rescue puppies, I find that everybody I ever talk to, you know, first question is, is your, is your dog a rescue? It's like you're socially shamed if you, if you didn't get a rescue puppy. However, at the same time, everybody who rescues a puppy is paying $800, $1,200 for a rescue puppy. I think there's a, a bit of a marketing issue that people are making money on this notion of their product is a rescued puppy when 
it's really um, being driven, frankly, by the puppy mills. John, I'll ask you to speak to Craig's point. I've rescued dogs my whole life and have never paid more than $200 for them. Can you tell us how lucrative the dog breeding industry is? Well, I think he was speaking specifically about rescues, and my experience has been similar to yours. Uh, my most recent adoption was a little pit bull puppy named Ziggy, and we paid $250 as the adoption Which fee for him. Which includes their shots. It includes a shot. It includes uh, a lot of expenses that that rescue had because he had actually been born to a mother dog who is sick. And so he spent two weeks in the vet clinic during his fifth and sixth week of life, which actually turned out really good for his socialization because he's as friendly as can be. And I think that having all of those vet techs ooh and an ong over the cute little puppy probably really helped. But they incurred significant expense. And my $250 adoption fee didn't even begin to chip at the expenses that the uh, 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 rescue had. Now, yeah. I, you know, if I can jump in, I, I will say that I, I think Craig's point was more to the the breed specific, the the rescues that really talk to you know the ability to kind of verify and vouch for the animals, and they they do tend to uh, adopt out at a markup because they are they're working specifically with a very uh, identified breed of of dogs. But I think you know the bigger issue here, one of the things that that we're trying to to change is that generally speaking across the country, shelters and rescues don't have uh, enough of a a framework around them for people to be able to know exactly what they are getting into. And that's where we we would love to see better transparency to make sure that that you are getting your animal from a rescue that that really is a rescue and isn't just somebody who's well-intentioned but is keeping 50 dogs in an apartment. Run for Tin says we have a moral obligation to reduce the number of dogs needing safe and healthy homes. How can a breeder provide optimal care for their own dogs and not also help homeless animals? I'm Celeste Headley. Coming up, we'll dig more into the health concerns facing designer dogs. Now, let's get back into this conversation with a voicemail we got from Jesse in Arkansas. I worked in veterinary medicine for the last 13 years and have noticed a huge trend in dog breeders. In a rural area, we have thousands of them. Very few of them actually utilize our veterinary services. They often claim that they do, and we sadly have to tell the person that brushes the puppy that, no, we have not seen it. It is not protected. It is sick from something preventable. They have terrible conditions. I did notice that when COVID started slowing down, a lot of my breeders shut down. The high-dollar responsible ones, they all minimized or quit breeding altogether. Be extremely careful who you get your dogs from. And if you insist on buying a purebred, insist on seeing where they live, insist on seeing veterinary records, and go straight to the vet after you get it. Dr. Banish, can I put this question to you about how often breeders work with veterinarians? Um, because that can be quite expensive if you are the kind of breeder who gets very, very good care, then that's not a puppy you're going to be able to sell for a few hundred dollars. Yeah, that's true. And there's also a, a huge list of pre-breeding health screening that we recommend that's specific to each breed that should be done before they're bred to make sure that they're not producing puppies with health problems. And the sort of what I would call reputable breeders are spending a lot of money on those on those tests before the puppies even are born, um, let alone what they might do as far as veterinary care after the puppies are born or with the parents. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't speak to what isn't happening with commercial breeders, but responsible breeders do all of that. 
Uh, a study from your university, the University of California, Davis, found that most dog breeds are highly inbred and that has contributed to higher levels of disease and higher health care costs. So from a veterinarian's point of view, what is the best way to breed a dog when it comes to their health? Yes, purebred dogs have higher inbreeding levels than mixed breed dogs, obviously, by definition. And those higher inbreeding levels appear to be associated with more health problems. So the ones that are even higher have more health problems. So um, if, if I could true. jump in, I, I will say that I, I, I think that what we see on that is that one of the things that, that we see in the continuing education that responsible breeders uh, repeatedly bring themselves to, to attend and participate in is that there's a lot of emphasis placed on the genetic health of their, their breeders, um, you know, ways to make sure that they are uh, doing what they can to introduce additional genetic diversity and to, to cut down on the likelihood of those genetic uh, predispositions. Uh, that's something that I know that, that the responsible breeding community takes very seriously. John, let me take you to this. How, how are these industries that we're talking about, the rescue industries, the breeding industries, poppy mills, how are these all intertwined? Well, I'm not sure that they're uh, intertwined in any sort of formal way, but obviously rescues and shelters are going to end up with dogs who uh, are relinquished for any number of reasons, and those dogs could have come from anywhere. Uh, you know, a, lot, or a good responsible breeder will tell someone who's buying a puppy from them, hey, listen, if you ever have any issue, I'll take this dog back. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. So right now, we have a situation in the animal shelters around the country where over the last year they've just filled up and they're jam-packed. And I really encourage anyone right now looking for a dog to go and adopt one at the shelter because they are jam-packed. We're not against responsible dog breeding. We don't want dogs to go extinct. But we don't want more dogs to be bred than they're available homes for. We want a balance there. And uh, right now the shelters are really facing a crunch. And we should say that um, somewhere between 900,000 and a million dogs are euthanized each year in um, shelters around the country. Again, that's an estimate. That that number uh, has been revised down repeatedly. That's the revised and, number. Yeah. Now, we, we've seen um, Best Friends Animal Society, for example, puts out numbers that are significantly lower than that because the 900 to 1,000 uh, often inadvertently conflates dog and cat numbers. That was the number that's just of the, the dogs. But in any case, there's mm -hmm. different statistics because these are all estimates. Um, but in any case, we are getting so many different comments from all of you. I'm not going to be able to read all of them, but let me read a couple more. Sean emails regarding rescue dogs. I've seen more pit bulls in my local shelters than in the past. I'm not against adopting a dog at a shelter, but when I go, that 95 to 100% of are the older pit bulls. I can't adopt a pit bull not knowing how they'd react to children or knowing their past. In some cases, they can be dangerous. Dangerous. And Noel emails, I've, had, I've been fortunate to adopt dogs from shelters. I'm severe asthmatic and have other health issues, so I require a hypoallergenic dog. My husband and I found a wonderful breeder of Golden Doodles who doesn't kennel their dogs, and they have a guardian program whereby we take possession and raise their choice puppy who will be bred appropriately two times. And let's listen to another voicemail. This is from Noah in St. Paul. Yes, puppy mills. And commercial breeders can be bad, but a lot of these quote-unquote rescues are just exacerbating the problem by buying dogs from the puppy mills, and all you're really doing is paying for a middleman and not really solving any problem because you're really just incentivizing the puppy mills in the end. So, Dr. Banish, 
can you make some sense of of this conversation about um, ensuring that you're buying a healthy dog? What advice do you give someone, whether they're going to hopefully a responsible dog breeder or a shelter? How do you make sure? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these points have been brought up, but you can find responsible dog breeders that want to take their dogs back if anything happens. Um, I'm one of those. I'm a dog breeder, and I've had um, two, unfortunately, two of my puppy people who passed away, and I took their dogs back and found them new homes, and this was 10 years later. So there are responsible dog breeders out there that are doing health screening, that are matching the puppies to the homes, raising the puppies and knowing them intimately and knowing which home that puppy is appropriate for. I think when you go online and you can just buy a puppy based on its markings at a week of age, that should tell you that that is not the way to get a puppy. Um, and then you said the same thing with shelters. I, you know, I, I'm all for shelters. There's nothing wrong with them. Unfortunately, like the last person that called in, in my local shelter, there are a lot of pit bulls and they are not may be appropriate for everyone's household. So, you know, there's a reason why sometimes people can't go and get a rescue dog because they can get into trouble with rescue dogs too that maybe aren't vetted, and I don't mean from a veterinarian, but vetted behaviorally appropriately yeah, for their home. I, I do want to say, though, um, first off, there are a lot of dogs in shelters right now of a lot of different breeds and types. But, you know, let's talk about the health of dogs that you acquire from any number of sources. There was a Centers for Disease Control investigation into the outbreak of a disease linked to the Campylobacter bacteria, uh, and they tied this back to pet store puppies. This investigation began in 2017, and there were several phases of it. It wrapped up right around you know, when they had to divert resources over to COVID. And what we found in the CDC's documents about this was claims made by the scientists there that in the commercial dog breeding industry, and these are their words, there were sanitation problems at every link in the chain. And that's probably why you have so many reports of sick puppies being sold through puppy stores. Uh, I asked the CEO of a puppy selling company uh, why there are so many sick puppies, and he pointed to the transport issue. And that's also what the CDC found. So what happens is, is you'll have a lot of these puppy mills in one region of the country, largely in the Midwest. They'll sell the puppies to a broker who then We'll have a transport vehicle, usually a cargo van, that they'll put about 160 puppies in, and they'll begin running a track, whether they're going to South Florida or New England or wherever, and stopping at stores everywhere along the way. 160 puppies is a lot. They're not being walked every two hours to relieve themselves, so the waste accumulates beneath them. They're baby animals with immature immune systems on a stressful journey with obvious sanitation problems. And so when people criticize an animal shelter for some issue, I want to point out that there are that's like saying that, well, you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye while I've got a log in my eye. I think that that's a To make it big, yeah. biblical. I should say that I worked, I volunteered at a shelter where they had a few dog breeders that anytime they had a sick dog, they would bring it to the shelter. Mm. Um, we got an email from Susan who says, I have a senior Doberman bred in Lancaster who came to me as an absolute train wreck of a rescue at age five. She was subjected to terrible neglect and abuse. Six years later, she remains a work in progress. She is expensive financially and in terms of time and emotional commitment. It is the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I couldn't love a living creature 
more. And uh, Vi emails us, the problem is the commodification of sentient beings, period. As long as business and profit is involved, there will be exploitation. Let me put this to you, Mike. Mm -hmm. Knowing that we all agree that we want dogs to be bred in a responsible and ethical and healthy way. Yes. Um, and yet knowing that there are actors out there who are not doing that, mm-hmm. what regulations would you support? For example, some of these breeders who just, who fill shelters with yep. dogs that they can't sell. That's absolutely a problem. And one of the things that we're, we're actually eager to see come into play now is uh, a, a recent change at the Department of Agriculture for USDA licensed breeders now in order to renew their license uh, and all breeders will be on this system by the end of this year in order to renew their license they have to have a completely compliant inspection. They need to make sure that they are 100% in line with the regulations at the Department of Agriculture. So to me, that's where the attention should be held right now is what do we do to make sure that regulations that are being put into place are the ones that guarantee the best possible outcomes for the animals. And that's where I'd I'd love to see groups like the Humane Society of the U.S. and, and organizations within the the breeding community look for ways to work together. You know, transport you talked about is a a great area. You know, when shelters and rescues are are shipping animals across the country to move them from areas of overpopulation to areas of higher demand, you know, the southwest to the northeast, for example, the shelter and rescue transport community is is no better than than, than the commercial transport community. Uh, I disagree with you on that. Well, no, in some I mean, in some cases, it's being they're, they're being brought in. I'm going to cut off this discussion only because I don't have the fact checking here to right. to, to give our listeners the, the facts. But let me move on because we have a couple minutes left and I want to get this listener question to our veterinarian. Uh, Renata emailed us, um, as a veterinarian, I appreciated the veterinary geneticist mentioning pre-breeding screening. Does she think the intense level of breeding, quantity over quality in commercial breeding facilities contributes to a serious genetic problems that we see in dogs on a daily basis? Doctor? We, we definitely have examples where it has. I mean, we've found, I, in my laboratory, we found a really serious lethal disease um, in Boston Terriers that only came in coat colors that are not allowed by the breed standard. And so we assume that some breeder was breeding for this special coat color and inbreeding because of it and causing these sick puppies. So there are examples of that. Um, I, do, I imagine that none of these what you're calling commercial breeders and puppy mills are doing any pre-breeding screening on their animals. I mean, they're just taking a purebred dog and crossing it to another purebred dog without any thought to the future of those dogs. So, you know, absolutely, certainly those are not helping. Um, In the 20 seconds or so that we have, doctor, how many times will you breed an animal before you um, retire them from that service? (laughs) (laughs) Twice, uh, maybe three times. I think I might have bred one dog four times over her lifetime. She was lovely and produced yeah. wonderful, sound-minded dogs. And my dogs are all born in my house and live with me in the house. And there's and no crates in my house them from or no one. cages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, at least we can all agree as we end this conversation that dogs are great. Uh, Dr. Dana Cabanish is professor at the School of Vet Medicine at the University of California, Davis. John Goodwin is the Senior Director for Stop Puppy Mills at the Humane Society, and Mike Bober is the President of the Pet Advocacy Network. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Today's show was produced by Michelle Harvin and Chris Remington and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.